And that is a beautiful hymn. I love those words. Well, please uh, direct your attention with me to Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. That is our text this morning. Mark 12, 13 to 17. We continue here, moving through the gospel of Mark. And I'll read our text and then pray for God's blessing to begin our time. Mark 12, verses 13 to 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them? Or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray. Our God, we pray for your Holy Spirit to work mightily in our midst to illuminate our hearts to your word. Give me faithful and clear proclamation of what you need your church to hear, what you know we ought to hear for our purity and for our sanctification, and even for the salvation of any who don't know you yet this morning. We pray that you would do wonderful things in our midst and bring about a fruitful response of faith and transformation into Christ-likeness. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our world seems to become more political with every passing week. Elections have now mushroomed to the point that we're always talking about them. It's amazing. No sooner did the sun go down on the midterms in 2022 than immediately we were ingesting opinions and news about the 2024 general election. It has become the spirit of our age to interpret every news story, every world event, every observation into another political data point. Everything has to fit that master narrative, whatever ours happens to be on that spectrum. And our struggles with politics extend to the church. Uh, Political theology is one of the most difficult and conflict-ridden areas of Christian discourse today. And I think that confusion and conflict will only increase is how it seems to be going. And we have some conservative Christians who can't see a shred of difference between the Republican Party platform and biblical Christianity. We have progressive Christians who feel the exact same about the Democratic Party. We have Christians fighting over Biden, Christians fighting over Trump. A few years back, it's kind of old now. Christians fighting over COVID. We have Christians fighting in principle even about what the proper posture should be of the people of God toward politics. Should we just preach the gospel and ignore politics? Is that naive pietism? Is that how to love our neighbors? I mean, surely many of the issues at stake here have a bearing on the good of our neighbors. Sometimes in some of these issues, we're dealing with matters of light and darkness, of righteousness and evil. But on the other hand, should the church forsake its fundamentally spiritual mission of preparing souls for eternity 
in order to become cheap political cheerleaders. That's been done before. It's ugly. We're hearing about Christian nationalism. What is Christian nationalism? What should we think about it? Well, apologies in advance, but I will not be settling all these issues for us today. It's easy to stir up all these questions. I won't be answering them all today. However, today we encounter a text of Scripture which stands as a major pillar and has throughout Christian history in terms of determining Christian political thought, how to think biblically about government. And however we answer all those questions I just raised and any number of others we might have, our thinking about these issues has to run through this important text. This is a crucial pillar in how we think about government as the people of God. And it's not just a matter of abstract theological and political theory, because as we'll see, Jesus' words are going to cut straight through our hearts, testing our loyalties and ultimately freeing us to live in the liberty of his kingdom. Now, at the point where we are in Mark, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he is moving toward the, the shadow of the cross, more and more closely to the cross, as the book's action accelerates toward this climax. And our text comes in the middle of a series of controversies. And we've seen, if you've been with us, recent passages, there's a group of power brokers who make up the ruling council who have approached Jesus. And in chapter 11, verse 35, they challenge his authority. By what authority do you teach what you teach? Do you uh, overturn tables in the temple, etc.? And as we saw last week, he responded to this by telling a parable that illustrates the severity of their opposition to God, especially expressed in how they oppose him, the beloved son whom God sent, and the one whom God would vindicate with the resurrection. Kind of the moral of everything was the stone that the builders rejected, the one who would be crucified by you people, God will make the cornerstone. So they ended that passage uh, in verse 12, retreating. They left him. So the they, in verse 13 of our text, this is the scribes and the chief priests and the elders. And they, from their retreated position, they send a delegation of Pharisees and Herodians. Now, we have met both of these groups before earlier in Mark uh, a while back. Pharisees are a religious sect, and they're concerned with devotion to the law of God, at least as they understand it. The Herodians were a political party. They were about uh, supporting Rome's client king, Herod. And it would be highly unusual for these two groups to find any common cause. These are very strange bedfellows. But all the way back in chapter 3, verse 6, we saw them getting together to begin plotting Jesus' downfall, the Pharisees and Herodians. And this is just a sign of how contrary Jesus is to the world's values. That such a diverse group of otherwise enemies would still be able to array themselves against him. So, we learn in verse 13 that they are sent to trap Jesus. Maybe they can force him to incriminate himself and give them fodder that they can use to bring charges against him to the Roman governor Pilate. They're looking for that kind of ammunition that they can bring against him. So, in verse 14, they... They paint him into quite a corner with his barrage of flattery. They call him first teacher. And then they say, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. And you may have in your ESV Bible, for instance, a footnote, you are not swayed by appearances, 
could also be, you do not look at people's faces. It's an idiom. Essentially, you're not concerned about what other people are thinking. You're not drawing from other people's opinions. You are sincere and, and you have integrity in teaching truly the way of God, no matter where the chips may fall with regard to other people. So the unstated message here is you can't back out of this. Uh, you can't escape this question to preserve yourself. If you're such a righteous teacher, we know that you'll give us a straight answer. So they proceed to ask him a question that puts him into a difficult political bind. Is it permissible from the standpoint of God's law, it's understood, is it permissible to pay Caesar's census tax? Now they are bringing up an explosive subject. Uh, Some of the groups of the Jews violently opposed the Roman tax. It had been instituted in the year 86, about 24 years earlier. And to them, for uh, Caesar to impose a tax on them represented a denial of God's sovereign right to rule his nation, Israel. Not to mention a, a great national embarrassment that this pagan foreign king has the right to tax them. So if he affirms the tax, he's going to alienate that portion of the populace, those people. He's going to lose some of his popularity. But on the other hand, if he denies the legitimacy of taxes, he's going to put himself in danger of sedition charges by Rome. And they would be certainly glad to jump on that and haul him before the governor with these charges. So what does Jesus do? How does he answer this difficult question? Well, as usual, his answer displays an astounding depth of heavenly wisdom, both in avoiding their trap and in laying down the most foundational biblical teaching on the Christian view of government. And here it is. This is obviously, as you read the text, the whole main point of this whole passage is the punchline at the very end. And it's the main point of all we're going to see this morning. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. That is obviously the main idea. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. It is a simple proverb, but it runs very deep. It's one of those things that the more you mull it over and the more you pry it open and like uh, onion layers, the more you take layers off, there's just more and more wisdom and implications that spill out of it. Uh, Jesus means here to instruct us and inform us, but also, as I said, to challenge our hearts in some profound ways. So let's examine three implications of this instruction to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to give to God what is God's. Three implications. The first is that civil authority belongs to Caesar. Civil authority belongs to Caesar. So Jesus' teaching here affirms that civil government is legitimate and good. God established government as his servant to enforce justice in society. And lying in the background of Jesus' affirmation here is way back in Genesis 9-6, God's charge in his covenant with Noah, when he says, whoever sheds man's blood by man, shall his blood be shed. So this is the biblical foundation for civil government. Humans should set up governments. They should institute this thing, government, that does things like enforcing justice and protecting human life. And and later texts of the New Testament will echo this and pick up on Jesus' teaching and fill it out in more detail. Two particular kind of hot spots are Romans chapter 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2. In particular, in Romans 13 verse 4, 
Paul calls governing authorities God's servant for your good. And he calls them an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So governing authorities are God's servant to exercise God's judgment and to do good for God's for, for people, for the for those who do good in society. And so Christians are supposed to submit to governing authorities. Uh, verse 7 of Romans 13 is especially poignant. It says, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. So Caesar and other civil magistrates are owed our tax revenue as well as the respect and honor that befits their office, even if not their own character and behavior. And the broad language from that verse I just read, Romans 13, 7, whatever is owed to anyone, pay it, taxes, revenue, honor. It shows that this principle extends to all areas of God-ordained human authority, whether it's the home, parents, children, spouses, or employers, things of this nature. Uh, The Westminster Shorter Catechism sees all of this kind of implicitly embedded in the fifth commandment, the commandment to honor one's father and mother. And so they ask this, what is required in the fifth commandment? And the answer is, the fifth commandment requires the preserving the honor and performing the duties belonging to everyone in their several places and relations as superiors, inferiors, or equals. End quote. So what this means is there's this diversity of human relationships that God has put us in. And the fifth commandment says, give to all what is owed to them in human relationships. Do your duty. Pay honor and submission that you owe in whatever relationships God has ordained for you, as is appropriate. And we owe our governing authorities honor Taxes, and as Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 2.2, are prayers. We owe them honor, taxes, and prayers. Now, for some of us who may have a more libertarian leaning, this might cut close to home. We need to be aware of the reflexive impulse to begrudge taxes and to begrudge honor from civil government. Jesus lived in a much more repressive political environment than we do, much more. And yet he could say with a straight face and without qualification, give Caesar his money. As his response rebuking any of us for being overly anxious and overly hostile, overly suspicious. Of course, his teaching rebukes any sort of cheating or dishonesty on our taxes. What about withholding due honor? He's also rebuking any slander or ridicule against our government leaders. The Bible is clear that even bad leaders should be honored for their position. Now, before God, we are free to disagree and dissent. We're free to pray against them. We're free to write arguments against them. We're free to vote against them, and we're free to take legal action against them. We are not free to mock and ridicule them. Christian, your governor, your president, your Congress, your state legislature, the judges and justices that sit on the bench, they are God's servant for your good. Jesus' teaching here reveals that normally our obligations to government don't conflict with our devotion to the Lord. 
Normally, our obligations to the government do not conflict with our devotion to the Lord. Normally, it's not a zero-sum proposition. And this is where he's critiquing some of his fellow Jews, the zealots, who are aggressively opposed to Caesar's tax. They are thinking in a theocratic mode that says, The Lord is our king. How dare this Gentile usurper arrogate such authority to himself? And Jesus' answer to that attitude is a strong rebuke. His teaching, though, is also shrewd and, and so profound, it slips through the trap of his opponents. Because on the one hand, by pointing to Caesar, verse 16, he points to the denarius and he says, that's Caesar. He's forcing the zealots to acknowledge that the Roman order does exist in Palestine. The Jews do benefit from Roman peace. The Jews trade in Roman currency. Like it or not, Rome is in charge. Yet at the same time, as we'll see in a moment, his answer subversively undermines Caesar in some crucial ways. Basically, Jesus is cutting through the political squabbles of his day in a way that leaves nobody uncriticized. We as God's people are looking forward to the day when Christ returns and he institutes his kingdom in full. He'll fill heaven and earth with his reign, uniting them in a new creation where only righteousness dwells. But in the meantime, as we wait for that day, we are citizens of two kingdoms at once. And sometimes it is difficult to negotiate between those two, those two overlapping jurisdictions. What do we owe to one? What do we owe to the other? But often it's not very difficult at all. Just pay your taxes. Just obey the law. Just don't badmouth the governor or the governing authorities. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Yet that is not the end of the story. The next implication that we need to examine is... Supreme authority belongs to God. Supreme authority belongs to God. He says, and give to God what is God's. Now, this whole exercise with the denarius shows that the unstated principle that's driving Jesus' logic is the image displays the owner. The image displays the owner. That's the whole point of this little object lesson of the denarius. It's a Roman coin. It was used to pay the census tax that they're asking about. And if you took one of these denarii and looked at it, on one side there was a um, a picture of Tiberius Caesar. And there was an inscription. The inscription he talks about, it read, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side it said Pontifex Maximus. This inscription was rooted in the imperial cult proclaiming Caesar to be the semi-divine son of a god, Caesar Augustus. So Jesus takes his coin and he looks at it and he reads the inscription and says, hmm, whose is this? Caesar. It's got, it's got his name on it. It's got his picture on it. It's almost like if you, those tags that you put on your kid's stuff when you send them to school saying, this belongs, this belongs to Tiberius, like his parents putting it on his coat, like, so he doesn't leave it at school. This coin belongs to Tiberius. It has his picture on it. So we can't make the mistake. But now if that's the principle, the image displays the owner, then the big question for us is, what belongs to God? And yes, you guessed it. If you heard our scripture reading just moments ago, mankind is made in God's image. We all belong to him. And so as a result, we owe him all our obedience and worship. We owe him our very selves at the deepest level. 
In fact, the word that's translated in verse 16, likeness, is actually the Greek word that we get our English word icon from. And it intentionally echoes Genesis 1.26 in the Greek text, the verse that began our scripture reading. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So whoever you are listening to me this morning, whether you are a believer in Christ, whether you don't believe in Christ, whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you're a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, you don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. You are a coin with God's picture on it. Give to God what is God's. The implication of this teaching, the implications are endless. Every fiber of our being belongs to God. Gary read earlier from the great commandment that Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He owns, he's the rightful owner of all of that from us. He owns our immaterial spirit and our physical body. Are you withholding anything of yourself from him? Acting as though, whether entirely or even partially, you are your own. Withholding from him your intellect, your emotions, your money, your time, your energy or life priorities. He is the rightful owner of all of it. Of course, we all fail to do this to some degree and in some ways. We all fail to give to God all of what belongs to him. That's why Gary prayed that prayer of confession and we all hurt ourselves in those confessions. God owns us all. He's the rightful owner. Now, Jesus' opponents show us what it looks like to withhold ourselves from God. They're a, a wonderful example of how to withhold ourselves from God. In other words, what not to do. Because in the context of Mark, Jesus is definitely taking a shot at his opponents here. Remember the previous passage. He accused them of opposing God by their rejection of him. This is what God says about Jesus. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. But these Pharisees and Herodians have approached Jesus with the direct opposite attitude. Their intellect is not yielded to God. They're not loving God with their minds. They're using their minds and their words and their logic to trap God's son and Messiah. By contrast, Jesus is the perfect image who yields himself fully to God. Jesus is the perfect image who yields himself fully to God. Hey, it's interesting that in verse 15, it says, Mark tells us, look, Jesus knows what's going on. He knows their hypocrisy. And yet he still goes ahead and plows on and answers their question. What does this show us? It shows us that ironically, their description of him in verse 14 is spot on. This is exactly who he is. He is true, and he truly teaches the way of God, and he doesn't care about anyone's opinion, and he doesn't give regard to people's faces with, with respect to what they think of him, how they respond to him. He fears no man. He doesn't care about staying out of trouble. He fears the Lord alone. As we hear in Isaiah 11.3, his delight is the fear of the Lord. And because he's entirely devoted to God, he teaches the way of God in purity and truth. Jesus is the perfect image of God. Jesus is everything that man was supposed to be, but fell away from in the garden. For all of us who are in Adam, we still 
are the image of God, but that image is, though present, it's distorted. It's twisted up. But in Jesus, the image of God is restored to all its perfect luster. And next week, when Greg returns to Colossians 1, we're going to hear this from verse 15, this wonderful statement, that he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. And we just sang about the true and better Adam. He is everything that we were supposed to be as the image of God. And the good news for us in Jesus is that discipleship to Christ restores us as the image of God. Discipleship to Christ restores us as the image of God. To be in union with Christ by the Holy Spirit is to be removed from the domain of the old man, the old Adam, and brought into this new domain of Christ. And we're brought to be united to him in the spirit. Then we start to resemble him in this new domain, being in Christ. And as we come to resemble him, we come to image God more faithfully. And so you see, in, for instance, Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 24, telling us to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self. So goodbye, old Adam. Hello, Christ. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. For those who trust in Jesus Christ, this is a reclamation project. We're being restored into the image of God. What sin morally distorted in us, Jesus restores. So if you aren't trusting and following Jesus today, you are living contrary to the purpose for which God created you. Everything that God made, he made to lean toward and attain its intended purpose. Everything has a God-ordained purpose that it was meant to be. And there is no greater misery than living contrary to that purpose for which God created you. But that's your state if you're in sin outside of Christ. To live as though you belong to yourself is, is like using a Rolex watch as a mere paperweight. Do you cringe at the thought of misusing something so precious in such an ordinary and ridiculous way? What a tragic waste. That's your life if you're outside of Christ. So Jesus offers true restoration to all who come to him in faith. He offers forgiveness of sin. And then he remakes us and equips us to fulfill our original purpose again, loving and worshiping and yielding ourselves fully to our creator God. So if you haven't yet trusted in Jesus and come to him in faith, we urge you today, let this be the day that he begins renewing you into the true human being that you were made to be. Well, now we've seen that we should give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and that we should give to God what belongs to God. Is there anything more to say about this passage? Well, have we exhausted Jesus' teaching? Far from it. Volumes could be written, teasing out all the many implications of what Jesus has to say. But we want to look at one more. There's one more important one we need to examine, and it is this. Caesar belongs to God. Caesar belongs to God. So here's a problem. Caesar and other civil authorities tend to drift toward claiming God's authority and honor for themselves. And here's where it gets tricky. I mean, we heard from the inscription on Tiberius Caesar's denarius how he makes God-like claims, a son of God, Caesar Augustus. 
And in the Roman Empire of this era, a religious cult had developed around the Caesars, especially Tiberius' father, the dead Caesar Augustus. Augustus had encouraged the imperial cult as a way of unifying this diverse and far-reaching empire. If everyone can uh, band together and worship Caesar and give him divine honor, then it kind of unites everybody. It wouldn't be until later generations that the heat would really turn up for those who refused to confess that Caesar is Lord. But even now, in Jesus' era, it's becoming unpatriotic to refuse those divine honors to Caesar. And so we have these historical particularities here with the Roman Empire, but the same impulse exists in all human governments. Even today, you have some places like North Korea where there is literally a religious cult of devotion surrounding the great leader. It's really weird that just the, the way that, that, that a religion has been thought of to surround the, the leader in North Korea. And that's extreme, though, in our day. But in most cases, the challenge to God's supreme authority is far more subtle. And we see this impulse alive and well in the progressive mindset of the modern West. And I earlier pointed out Jesus' teaching challenges those with more libertarian leanings among us who tend to be hostile and suspicious of government. Well, the charge of to give God what is God's also challenges the politically progressive the left has a strong tendency to grant to government godlike authority, godlike prerogatives, and to hold government to godlike expectations. It is astounding how, from this perspective, every problem in society translates directly into an item on the policy to-do list for the state or federal government. Every problem in the world needs to be a policy because the government has to fix it without a god to pray to. Without an eschatology and end times to anchor our future, all our hope becomes pinned on the earthly political order. Are we seeing that in our world today? And both this is both on the left and the right. The way that elections are taking on such ultimate and existential urgency, this is nothing more than the modern speak for Caesar is Lord. For, for many people today, the U.S. federal government is God, functionally. So friends, let Jesus' words put us on notice about the expectations of our hearts. Is he rebuking you for being overly optimistic about the government, for investing it with the authority and expectations that he alone deserves? I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. This is Psalm 130, verses 5 and 6. Jesus' teaching also warns the rulers themselves. They're not above accountability to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we hear about this more in Psalm 2, verses 10 to 12, putting human rulers on notice that they had better be at peace with the Lord's Messiah, saying, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Caesar owes a kiss of homage and reverence to the Lord's Son and Messiah. His wrath, Jesus' wrath, hangs over the heads of those who refuse to bow, persisting in their own claims to divine honor and authority. And so, brothers and sisters, it is right to have a godly jealousy for God's supreme glory. 
It is right for us to be angry at arrogant human authorities who don't rule in the fear of the Lord. It's right for us to pray against them. I would say first to pray for their repentance, but secondarily for their destruction if they won't repent. Devotion to God puts limitations on our loyalty to civil government. And Jesus' answer fundamentally relativizes civil government under God. That means whatever claims Caesar may make, and however other citizens may choose to honor and worship Caesar, so to speak, the Christian never loses sight of this crucial distinction between creator and creature. Jesus doesn't attack Caesar, but he undermines him with this subtle subversion. There is a definite order. God's authority always comes first. We don't obey God because Caesar says so. We obey Caesar because God says so. That order is very important. So in order to give God what is God's, we Christians need to prepare our hearts to stand out from the world's idolatrous order by our devotion to the Lord. So it's kind of complicated. Does the Bible teach believers to obey the government? Yes and no. Yes, on the surface level, we should be good and obedient citizens. But insofar as governments have a tendency to usurp the place of God in the affections and loyalties of their subjects, sometimes, often even, Christians will have to stand out in certain ways and go against the flow. So our relationship to civil government is simply not simple. It's simply not simple. (laughs) There are going to be some ways that Christian discipleship should surprise the watching world with how tolerantly we accept what the government gives us. We tried to model this during COVID time as a church. Uh, Whether or not we agreed with the protocols and the public health orders that were coming out at any given time, and even among us all, I'm sure opinions varied widely. But whatever our opinions of what was coming out, we did our very best to cheerfully comply with everything we could as far as biblical obedience would allow. But there are other ways that faithful disciples of Christ will surprise the world by what we can't go along with. Even things that they think are no big deal, and they're going, are you kidding me that you're going to make a big deal out of that? But we see it as saying Caesar is Lord. And we'll have to kindly but firmly refuse. For instance, speaking of how God made us in his image, male and female, we cannot give an inch to deny nature in all its created goodness in the areas of gender and sexuality and marriage. Jesus has sent his church into all the nations to preach the gospel that sinners can be reconciled to God through faith in the crucified one. But to be faithful to this message, we can't lose sight either on the one hand of the goodness of creation or of the badness of sin. And when we call darkness light and when we call light darkness, we utterly forsake our mission. Friends, being relentlessly truthful in matters like these is becoming increasingly out of fashion to both sides of the political aisle. And facing the consequences for faithfulness in these areas or others like them, for instance, refusing to declare our pronouns at work because it gives credence to false gender ideology, this will cause the watching world to scratch their heads and say, that is a strange hill to die on. So be it. We give to God what is God's. God's supremacy frees us by relativizing temporal wealth and power. And I've used this word relativize. I mean just to put it in its limited rightful place. 
The world's wealth and the world's power are not ultimate. As always, Jesus is giving us good news. It may intuitively feel like freedom. What does freedom feel like? It feels like clinging to my money and clinging to my power and saying, don't tread on me. But no man or woman is freer than the one who can hold loosely to the temporal goods of the world because Jesus owns our heart. There's no one freer than that. And this morning in this text, God is unloading a, burden, unloading a burden from our shoulders. Jesus is giving us permission and instruction to live on earth with the freedom of those who belong to God and the ability then to hold loosely to money and power. Don't you just love the childlike simplicity of Jesus' response here? It, it's not naive. It's incredibly shrewd and wise, but it's so simple. He's saying, oh, it's Caesar's picture on that money? Well, then give the man his coin back. Like, what's the big deal? Money and power have such a hold on the hearts of men and women in our culture, and, and many of us today to, deg- to degrees that, that vary, but these have a hold on our own hearts. And Jesus is demonstrating for us a refreshing and otherworldly freedom from those chains. Now, earthly power and money are not unimportant. They do matter for the well-being of ourselves and our neighbors, and they should matter to us. But they're not ultimate. They're not God. And whatever else happens with money and power, I love this, this Proverbs 3.24, assuring the, the son who will embrace the way of wisdom, if you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. We're citizens of two kingdoms at the same time, but only one is our true home. And we hear about this in Hebrews 13, verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. If we are a people who seek and live for the lasting city to come, this allows us to subvert the world's idols by denying ultimacy to all these worldly goods that are passing away. Money's not ultimate. Power's not ultimate. And Jesus is freeing us then to cheerfully pay our taxes, knowing that the Lord is going to be our provider. And Jesus is freeing us to be kind to our political and cultural enemies because like us, they're made in God's image. And like us, they rightfully belong to him. And like us, they've fallen into sin. And like us, they can be redeemed through faith in the blood of Jesus. Christ is freeing us to rejoice and praise the Lord when elections don't go our way because he sits on the throne. Christ is freeing us even to undergo suffering if need be in order to refuse to say Caesar is Lord. And Jesus is freeing us to take courageous stands for the sake of truth and righteousness without fear of how it will hurt our standing in the eyes of man. Beloved, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. This morning, Jesus has shown us that human government is legitimate and that we owe them our prayers and our taxes and our appropriate honors. But more importantly, Christ has pointed the way to our greater obligation to God as our owner and creator. Jesus is the perfect image of God who restores the image in us who believe in him. And finally, we've seen how God's kingship puts Caesar and all other human rulers in their place. We live in this order as happy and engaged citizens, but this order, this world, does not have our hearts. No, our hearts join with the worshipful throng in heaven, crying out to the one who loved us and saved us by his blood. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth 
and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, we praise you for the saving mission of Christ. Thank you for the last Adam, restoring your image in us. Not only washing away our sin, but returning us to a place of glory that we had lost in sin. It is so good to belong to you, God. You're a gracious ruler. You're a gracious owner. And for all of us who know Christ, it is our joy to be yours. And we pray that you would increasingly cause us to give our hearts and our lives over to you. And in every way that you see that we're not doing that, show us. So we can give you what is owed to you joyfully. And part of that, God, is we pray that we would live as free men and women before our governing authorities. That we would... In freedom, we would submit to them as you call us to, that we would pay our taxes and that we would pray and that we'd honor them, but that ultimately our, our hearts would belong to you. And if any here don't yet know Christ, we pray that they would find joy and life and forgiveness through faith alone in him. We pray all this in his name. Amen.